Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we have Fernando Cipriano. And I said Cipriano, I was so happy that I pronounced his last name like that. I went home, I explained to my wife that I had this great podcast with Fernando, and I said that I pronounced his last name properly, Cipriano. And I think she said that, you know, Carol speaks, for those of you who don't know, my wife speaks Italian. And uh, I think she explained to me that his last name is probably Cipriano. So now I'm going to have to ask him if it's Cipriano or Cipriano. And I can't remember if that's actually what she said or not. So I, I probably patted myself on the back thinking I did a great job pronouncing his last name. And he's probably so kind that he didn't correct me in real time there. So now I'm going to talk to him about that next time we chat. But we had a great discussion on the finance industry. He's been through a lot. Wait till you hear how he grew up in the finance industry, how he started his own business, how he sold that business and then retired. And now how he's jumped back in to the finance game and why artificial intelligence is playing a big role in his new venture. And you are going to hear us talk about that new venture. I I need to uh, explain that Nick and myself are not currently invested in his fund. So when you hear him talk about that, please do your own due diligence and do your own research before diving in. Don't take our discussion here is the only research you do before jumping in. Please let me repeat this. Make sure you do your own research on really beyond this on anything Nick or I say or talk about real estate, investing, this particular fund that Fernando's starting, anything at all. It's in your best interest to do all, always do your own research and due diligence before you jump into anything. So I think, uh, yeah, I really think you're going to enjoy the chat. We cover a lot of stuff, including education today, the economy today, where we think the economy is headed. So we cover a lot of stuff all around. Great guy. Um, had a good chat. And if, listen, if you are listening to this and you want some real estate information and you have not checked out rockstarinnercircle.com yet, that is the single source for real estate information from Rockstar that you can go to, to get access to digital copies of our books, are the latest reports that we're putting out, the latest YouTube videos that we're putting out, all the links to podcasts like this, and including access to the introductory 90-minute training class that we've now been doing virtually in the new world. So if you want to get access to that class where we break down how we're investing with Canadian real estate investors right here in the greater Toronto area and right across the Golden Horseshoe today, you can get access to that class and register for that class, along with getting access to the videos that we put out, the reports, free access access to the books, everything that we're doing at www.rockstarinnercircle.com. And with that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Caradza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with, Fern I, I, I hope I say your name properly here. And I, I feel like I have to say it with some emphasis. I don't know why. Fernando Cipriano. That's perfect. Is that, is that how, how I say I, it? I'd like to record that <laughs> and take it with me on my voicemail. I'll just put it on my voicemail when people call. That's perfect. We're uh, born in Canada. I am, yes. I don't know why I ask people where they're born, if they're an immigrant or not. I, I don't know what that is about, but I always ask. So yes. born in Canada, I was born in uh, Toronto, just off Weston Road. Where were you born? I was also born in Toronto. Got it. My parents are Italian, so I'm... Immig they're immigrants. They're immigrants. Yeah. I, I only spoke Italian by the time I went to kindergarten because I'm, I'm the eldest and I had no siblings to speak to, so... I speak and write Italian and 
Yes, I'm Italian. You, so you still speak Italian? I do. Well, my wife speaks Italian and her family, I think I mentioned this, her family's from Florence. Yes, you so did. So apparently I've been told this is the proper Italian Fernando. This is the Italian of the Italians. Yes, this is <laughs> your wife and her family would look down on my No, 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 my, my wife family. is not like that at yes. all. Her mom is not like that at all. But I have to tell you something. I went to Italy, I guess, uh, we've been many times, but the, one of the last times I went, we, uh, we got off a cruise ship, actually, is how we kind of got in on that particular trip. Um, actually, we've been there since then. But anyway, we, we got off the cruise ship. It stayed overnight in Livorno. So we went over to Florence and we we met up with her family and we stayed overnight in a hotel we booked. It was a converted church. Wow. It was a church that turned into a hotel. It was the best. I couldn't believe where I was staying. It was it was the most amazing hotel I'd ever stayed in. And then to meet her relatives there, they come with the red jeans and the yellow shirt yes. and the crocodile. T- and the collars are up and they got these sweaters tied they're around. Very they're, they're, yeah, they're very, very subtle. Yeah, they're very subtle. About very, their very fashion, subtle. They're yeah. talking about this and that. And uh, we're talking espresso and Italian foods. And, and they're just so passionate about everything. And uh, they gave us the behind-the-scenes tour of Florence. Wow. Which, yeah, her her uncle used to sell jewelry on that very famous bridge in Florence, the one with all the little uh, sure. shops on it and stuff. Uh, her, uh, my my wife's grandfather was an engineer in Florence and the great flood, whenever that was, he was in charge of uh, rebuilding the bridges there. When he passed away, the university in Florence came in and took all his drawings and put them in the university wow. museum. Yeah, so really, really... Uh, Cool story there in Florence. And now I've learned all about monetary policy. I, I, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to monetary policy. Okay. You might not know this. And uh, the, what the Medici family and what Florence did to bring Italy and Europe out of the dark ages and re- bring back a gold coin and bring back, you know, trust in economic trade through that is quite astonishing. Mm-hmm. It, it's made me realize that I want to go back to Florence because I used to brush off all the art and all the museums there, but now I want to go back and go through all the tours and stuff. Sure. Sorry, I'm talking... So, you know what? Florence is one of the most beautiful cities in Italy, and I've often said that Italy is so flush with incredible draws for tourists. I mean, you think about it. If, if a country simply had one of their cities, Rome, Florence, Venice, Milan, they could carry a tourism industry. And Italy is just like, you know, so blessed with all these cities. I'm like, wow, it's almost unfair that they get so totally. much history. I, I always give my, my wife yes. a bit of crap because I'm like, we got to get back to Italy. Yes. Take us back to yes. Italy. You yes. know, we've been around Sicily, uh, Sicily and Portofino and Venice. And I just love, yeah. I feel like part of me must be from, even though I definitely don't look Italian what? at all. <laughs> oh, no, no. But uh, I, I just love the, I love the place. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sold. But yeah, uh, good. okay, so you're born in Toronto. Mm-hmm. You grow up t- Toronto. Yes, uh, then moved to Milton, long before Milton was a big city, which now it is, or a big town now that it is. It's a tiny place when you moved It down. was there. We were 24,000 people in the 70s, and and uh, yes, it was very small. And now when I go back to it, it feels like I'm I'm sort of, uh, you know, Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, because I feel like I'm entering a place that I don't recognize anymore, because I hadn't gone back to it in so many years. And you drive in, and you're like, when did this all happen? But uh, with Madame Holmes there that just spread through the entire town and just turned it into a big metropolis now. At one point, I don't know if they're still doing, doing this, but at one point, Madame was putting their homes together in a factory, yes. driving them the out pre-made. to the, the pre-made and dropping yes. them on the foundation. I mean, they were just pumping oh, out those homes. I've never seen a town. And in fact, if I'm not wrong, I've heard that Milton, for many years, was the fastest growing city in all of North America. Oh, was it? No- I knew it was heard, Canada for a while. I heard it was North yeah, America. Wow. So... Again, that wasn't the Milton that I grew up in, but that's where I went to high school and 
And then, uh, you yes. still keep in touch with any high school buddies or? Yes. You... Yes. Occasionally. Yeah. I mean, through, uh, I'm, I'm not on social media, which I should be, but, uh, my brother who is will often, you know, show me the, the contact Loop that he has in. with people and then, and then we'll go out and grab a coffee with some of these people. So Very it's cool. Nice. Yes. So then you get over to, you go to university, mm-hmm. right? I, you told me this before. I've forgotten. Which, where'd you go? I went to McMaster university and, uh, earned a, a social sciences degree and realized that I probably wasn't going to get a job with that. Um, and plus I loved going to school. So then I went back and got a business degree at Windsor. Um, and then again, wasn't quite done. And, and, uh, my brother and I decided to go to teacher's college. We thought we wanted to be teachers and we graduated in the early nineties in perfect timing. We're very good at this. Um, they'd laid off like 70,000 teachers that year. So we couldn't get a job. And so thankfully, uh, I fell back on my, uh, finance degree and got a job at a small mutual fund company, at the time small, that became very big in Hamilton, one called AIC. Uh, what was the deal with AIC? Because I invested mm. really uh, early, uh, not early on, I, it must have been late actually, I invested in AIC2. Was mm. there a second? Advantage fund? fund 2. Yeah. Yes. What was the what was the all the rage with AIC? I remember yes. when AIC came out, I was like, oh my gosh, AIC, AIC. Yes. What was the deal? You know what? It, you know, Michael Leachin, the founder, had this uh, investment thesis that he felt that um, the place to invest was in mutual fund companies. So, and this is where it gets a little bit, you know, abstract. His mutual funds would buy the stocks of mm-hmm. other mutual fund companies. His theory was that people over time would stop investing in GICs and put their money into mutual funds. And he was bang on. Uh, and, and what happened was all these holdings in his portfolios of mutual funds, the stocks were going crazy over the 90s. And his Advantage fund had one year a return of like 92%. And it had a 10-year track record. I, I'll never forget this. In 1994, it achieved a 10-year track record. And 10-year track records are a big thing. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it was like 17% compounded. So people went crazy for AIC. They went, when I was there, we were were managing a couple hundred million dollars in assets. It grew to $15 billion. It was the fastest growing fund company. At that level, it must just get hard to put the money. You're exactly right. I I think I came in when it stopped stopped performing as well. I'll tell (laughs) you what. I was late to the game. Unfortunately, when you're, you're so bang on, when you're raising that kind of money, there's only so many stocks of mutual fund companies you could invest in. So he started to invest in other things. And it was the other things that didn't do so well. Um, again, I was a young man at that point. So that was so far but what, beyond what a, what a time to come in. How much, how yes. much did you learn from... Because how did you get into AIC? What was your first role there? Okay, well, I was answering phone calls and, and I was doing everything right. because, yeah, yeah. because there was only about 12 of us at the firm. I mean, we were working out of a house in Hamilton on Markland Street, this beautiful... You know, majestic home. I've, I think I've been to that on home on Markland yeah, yeah, Street, yeah, yeah. and and so because it's now offices, yes, right? In the, yeah. Yes, and so at the time it was like going to a person's house to work, and so um, you, you're forced to learn everything, every aspect of the fund industry, you know, from investment management, customer service, operations, marketing, you know. So you just saw it all because you were a kid doing everything. But when I first started, I was answering phone calls from investors that wanted to know about our funds. Um, and then over time, it, because I was so exposed to all of it, I decided, you know what, and probably naively, I can do this. So decided to, you know, start my own firm at one point, and and that happened too. Uh, so, but before we get to your to your firm, sure. in those AIC years, what what did you 
what did you see from this Michael Lee Chin guy? Am I saying his name right? Yes. I know he's like a big billionaire in he Canada sure and stuff. Is. I should probably know the name. And yes. I, but uh, what did you, from your interactions with him, I assume you interacted yes, with him? Yes, yes. Well, yeah. I'm still good friends with him. Okay. What are some of the character traits of someone like him that you really, um, I don't know, maybe surprised you? Mm-hmm. Was there anything you took away from yes. someone like that? Just his thinking, the way he behaved? I can tell his you His principles? Something. You know, not just Michael Lee Chin, but that was my first exposure to a very successful, you know, entrepreneur. But in the case of all entrepreneurs, I, you know, I, I've discovered one similar trait that they all share. And if I had to distill it down into one, and I do this, I tell people this all the time. It is this one fundamental characteristic. They are incredibly decisive. You know, that doesn't mean all their decisions are right. But I find what distinguishes successful entrepreneurs from everyone else. And this is not to say this is a great quality to have. I'm just saying they all possess this, is that they make decisions quickly and decisively. They don't belabor decisions. They don't waver. They don't second guess themselves. They make a decision sometimes with less than full information. They, they go on their instincts. They go on their, you know, uh, uh, conviction. But that's the, that's the thing. And I, I, I believe I have that too in that, as I said, I make a lot of mistakes. I make a lot of bad decisions, but I never uh, uh, vacillate on a decision. I make it and then I'm convicted and, and I, I, I'm strongly, you know, conviction on that. And, and then we just, if it works out great, if it doesn't, I can live with it. But that to me is the quality that I see is strong, strong conviction and an, an ability to make decisions that otherwise paralyze some people, but they make those decisions. Do you, is it the decisiveness that just saves t- Sometimes I tell people that you need to make mistakes because the mistakes are the raw material for your success. Like you need to have a lot of raw material to Absolutely. be able to build your success off of. So don't be scared. Like just make a whole bunch of mistakes and try to make them quickly because then you actually have more information from which to make better decisions going forward. Do you think decisiveness is a way to collect just mistakes or is it just saving time? Like what is it about no, decisiveness I, that I is so powerful? I'll tell you what I think it is, is this. Is it, it's a muscle. Making a decision is like a muscle. The more you work it, the better you get at it. So to me, I agree with you 100%. You do gather information that, that will, at some point in the future, you may not even know you're using it, but you are using it. But to me, I even say something as silly as even a menu at a restaurant. Sometimes you'll go into a restaurant that has like countless pages of, of food ideas. I'm just very decisive. I know what I want. I pick it very quickly. I've seen other people that just Same labor <laughs> over a decision. And what I always say is that may be a small example, but exercise that muscle. Make a decision on small things because then you'll make a better decision or a quicker decision on bigger things. In the end... You'll never be able to um, do enough due diligence to ensure that your decision is perfect. And the only difference with um, uh, successful entrepreneurs is that they will make that decision knowing that there is no perfect decision. And as long as I can live with it, whether it's a color of a car, how many times are people in a dealership saying, I don't know what color to go to. I love them both. And what I often say is you'll love that color when you take it home. You'll never see it in comparison to a separate car parked right next to it. You know, so make the decision. You will love it. I, I, I always say to people, this is the exercise I go through in my mind. I'll say, what is the worst case scenario of this decision? Then I say, can I live with that worst case scenario? And I, if love, I, I love what you just said. If I can live with it, then make the decision. 
Because, you know, whether it's my wife saying, what color should we paint these walls? And I say, well, listen, what's the worst case scenario? You dislike the color. So the worst case scenario is that we may have to repaint it, right? Can you live with that? If the answer is yes, I'm prepared to repaint it. Well, then make the decision. It, it's so, I'm so happy you're bringing this up. We do so much. So my, my brother and I, did my brother just close the door on us? See, he just shut us out there. He it's did. our little secret passageway to his office. He's like, hey, I don't want to hear you guys. That, um, that shows how uh, interesting I am. Yeah, he, yeah. He no, 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 not at all. This is great. One of the things that I uh, Nick and I talk about all the time is that when it comes to real estate and things that we do, we always just plan for the worst. So sometimes we can come off as maybe, if people just meet us, they're like, oh, you guys are very negative. And we're like, no, 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 not at all. If we can plan for the worst case and and build around that or minimize that with an insurance product or yes. hedge it, wh whatever we're going to do or live with it like you're saying, we're good to go. It's part of the reason I'm crazy enough to invest in gold. Mm -hmm. It's part of the reason I've been reading about just uh, Bitcoin and mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand all these different things at play because one of them might be able to help me mitigate some other things in my life. And that's what I'm about. I feel like success almost takes care of itself. Yes. If I kind of mitigate all these little things around me and I just kind of do my thing, the success is the easiest part of the whole journey. I don't know. I'm, I, I might sound confusing. No, but, no, uh, no. I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's all predicated on this idea of just make the decision because the only wrong decision is one that's not made. And uh, it was a lesson I learned years ago. I met a, a person that I was working with. We were both managers at a fun company and... And he said to me, you know, I was told by one a person once that what leaders look for in future leaders are that the person can make a decision. And not that the decision's right, but just simply makes a decision. And so even when you're looking for, uh, you know, someone to in the future to lead, look for people that can make decisions. Because I think those are the people that you can count on to... Uh, to move the, the business forward. At least that's what I've noticed. So you, uh, so that's great. Thank you for the sharing that. Uh, awesome. And uh, so when you, what, what year do you then transition out of the AIC world mm. or, you know, what, what year was that? And there was, there was in between. Uh, so AIC was, I, I argue at the time, the smallest mutual fund company in the world because, you know, when I joined um, and then I went to the biggest mutual fund company in the world at Fidelity Investments. They're out of Boston and, and, um, you know, at the time they were managing almost a trillion dollars of assets for clients wow. around the world. So I just wanted to get some exposure. Okay. So I've seen how a, a small entrepreneurial, you see how you 12 know, people in Hamilton exactly. out of a house do it. <laughs> Let's see how the big boys do it. And admittedly, I was very intimidated when I went, when I went sure, to work natural. for them. Yeah. I thought I'll never forget being in the first meeting with all these people thinking I am an imposter. I shouldn't be here because I don't understand the language. How speaking. soon did that change? You know what? It changed it, quick. It changed pretty quick. Experience. It changed pretty quick. You know, I thought, okay, well, they know their thing very well. I knew everything because of AIC showed me every aspect of it. So, um, so I went to Fidelity for a number of years, um, and then in two thousand and two, so uh, AIC was the beginning of the nineties until the late nineties, and then I joined Fidelity, and then uh, from in the late nineties, and then in two thousand and two, I decided I met an individual there that we decided to go off and start our own firm. So in 2002, we did and uh, started a firm called ROI Capital. Very cool. Were mm -hmm. you married at this point? Not married? I was Kid married. Kids? I had children too. Children too? Okay. And, Where are you living? Uh, I was I, living in Burlington. Okay. Um, and uh, This is a freak out moment. Yes, yes. Uh, thankfully, my, my wife at the time, my now ex-wife, but still a dear friend. Very uh, cool. We get along great. 
she was an incredibly supportive wife. And she said, yeah, let's do this. I mean, if it's, it's a risk. We had to take a, out a big line of credit against our home to fund this new business. But I, again, I, I had strong conviction that we were doing something special. And I thought, I'm going to make it. What's the worst? This is exactly, <laughs> I'll never forget. This is what I said to her. I said, what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is it doesn't work. My skills are easily transferable back to this industry outside of my own firm. I said, if it doesn't work, we'll know very quickly and I'll go back to work in the industry and get a great job. I'd left on very good terms with Fidelity. I could have returned to Fidelity. They were very disappointed to see me leave. So I thought I could actually return and, and life will go back to normal. So we lose a little bit of money to start this firm, but we can survive that. And that's what made me decide. And, um, Thankfully, so your skill, you said something really powerful there. You could, you, the worst case was that you could go back to fidelity. You could go back to fidelity because of the skills that you had through fidelity right. and through your time before that. Um, how does some, because I looked at the same way when I quit my job in tech, um, I used a credit line on our house yeah. to help start Rockstar with Nick. And we yeah. were out of, uh, we, our first office, by the way, was the, was a, a closet in Bur uh, an Oakville brokerage. We couldn't afford an, an actual office, which were tiny, we, but they had a, like a old mop closet. And they said, well, we'll rent you That's that great. one out. And we're like, okay, we'll take it. So that was our first office um, uh, here. Yeah. Over here, just on North service road here in Oakville. And, uh, and then, you know, I took a credit line on the house and, you know, but I, I just had the strong conviction that I, I, like you, I just had, it was in my soul. I felt like I had to go do this. Um, and there, I mitigated the risk as well saying, well, I had a lot of experience in software sales at Oracle and then NetSuite. I could, the software is kind of the thing right now. I can easily go back into right. that industry, but I was fortunate to have those skills. How do you think you would tell your own children right now? To, like, would you tell them to get a base of skills from another company to begin their career or go off just in, into an entrepreneurial world right away and build some of those skills? Because, and I'll tell you where I'm coming from, because I think we have a, a kids, one of my son's the same age as one of your yes. sons. And I, I kind of struggle sometimes with talking to him about this because I'm like, he, he I can tell he's, he's entrepreneurial in his thinking and that kind of stuff. But sometimes I do find myself telling him, hey, I had a, a great benefit from going to Oracle in 1998 when tech was just going like this, like you in your journey, tech was exploding. Oracle was exploding. Yes. I learned so much in a compressed period of time there right. and in multiple different areas within that company. It really served me well for the rest of my life. I think I use some of those skills today here at Rockstar that I learned there. And I, I struggle. I'm like, I don't know exactly the right path. Does he find a small company like the one you began at mm -hmm. that you can learn a lot at? Do you ever think about th that? I do. Because I feel like that skill set mitigated your, uh, you, you know, any, any worst case scenarios. True. Uh, th that it's very true. But again, wh what I've found is that after speaking to a number like you, I think you love to speak to different business owners to see how did you do this? And the other thing I've noticed is that there is no uh, formula to this. So I think for every person, it's different. I do think it's incredibly valuable if you do get that experience. Conversely, you know, just jumping into something, you learn very quickly how to fail and then you'll learn how to <laughs> totally. succeed. In the end, I'm a little bit of a fatalist this way in that I believe everyone is destined to do what it is they're destined to do. So whatever, you know, course they take, that is the course they were intended to take. And I, I don't know. It's a great, no, no, I like that. I like that. I can go with that for sure. You know, like yeah, you, yeah. I don't know the, the right answer yeah, for that. For yeah. us, you and I, we started in the, in an industry, learned a lot from it and took those very skills and moved on for others. Like look at some of these 
tech billionaires, they go to college, they drop out of college and they go right into their industry and they create, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebooks of the world, the, you know, Bill Gates, the Microsofts of the world, you know, these guys just dropped out of college and just started. So who's to say what the totally. right, what the right thing to do? I do with? feel very fortunate that when I came out of school in the kind of mid nineties there, just, I happened to come out into an economy that's had a you know, let's call it a 25 year run right. of just going up. And I sometimes think we, my friends and I debate this. I, a couple of other buddies run some businesses and we're like, hmm, are we super smart or did we just not super smart and arrogant yeah. for, point of a uh, 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 way, but just, uh, or did we just get lucky that we jumped onto a, an economy right. that happened to be ramping like this and we are the beneficiaries of that. And then our children now like, Ugh, there might be a little bit of wobbling ahead. Who mm -hmm. knows which way we go? How will, how will their path unwind? Not that we're concerned or worried yeah. like you, everyone has their own path. We believe. But it's just a th you know something this that's rolls around in the back of your mind, oh, right? Tom, you're you're bang on because look at Malcolm Gladwell's book. I don't, I'm not sure if it's Outliers or, or the other one where he talks about that. It's all about the the era that you're oh, does rising. Oh, so I, I guess I didn't oh, read this. You're bang book on. Then. You're bang on. Okay. I mean, if you read Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about that the greatest tech entrepreneurs all were born in like the similar decade. So it just so happens that they emerged at a time when technology was emerging. Conversely, you know, we may have an issue with our own children that if they come out of college or universities in a time of recession, a strong recession, you that will dictate what it is you do and may, you know, start to hamper your future success just simply because of bad timing. You're bang on. Yeah. I mean, some of it is dumb luck. Look at me. Mm -hmm. I graduated from from business school. I could have gone to work at any industry in any business. I just stumbled across the investment industry in Hamilton because they were hiring. I didn't have some grand plan no, yeah, that I yeah, wanted yeah. to be in finance. But then you as a person maximized the opportunity. So Maybe so, yeah. but like you said, you know, bang on, that early on in the 90s, this was emerging. Mutual funds were just growing. And I just happened to be a passenger on this train that was roaring totally. forward. Before that, it was like GICs. Yeah, it was all GICs. My, my father-in-law, I always share this, or my father-in-law had a GIC in the early mid-80s. He's, he's since passed away. He was an older gentleman. And... Uh, he had a GIC for 18%. Wow. Do you know how many times he's told me the story oh with a gosh. smile on his, on his face? I always loved, loved hearing it too. Anyway, okay, so you go on to start your your fund. Uh, your, you know, uh, family support is there. And what happens next? How does this unfold? You know, this is where I, I wish I could tell you sort of a, 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 a sort of bootstrap. It, it was really tough at first, but we were very fortunate. We were very successful from day one. And uh, we grew the firm uh, very strongly right away. Um, it grew to uh, almost $2 billion of it clients' assets. We had 17,000 investors in Canada that we were managing money for. It was going very well. Um, yeah, we, I would call that going very well. Yes, yeah. and like I said, I wish I could tell you it was tough at first, but we had a very compelling story, and it did very well. Uh, we were doing uh, primarily first secured mortgages, second secured mortgages huh. on commercial real estate, industrial real estate. We would lend money to the big borrowers, groups like Rio Can, the REITs were borrowing money from us. So our investors would give us money. We would then lend it out in the form of these mortgages. And it was very conservative and, and uh, delivering modest returns, but very stable returns. And it was a great business. And then in 2014, 12 years later, um, uh, a bigger firm, Dundee, decided to buy our funds. So uh, at that point, I retired. So Tough decision? No, because you were ready. You the were... industry had changed. And uh -huh. I'll tell you, it, it was changing dramatically. 
unlike in the 90s where people were really open to the idea of new innovative yeah. products uh, yeah. coming out Index of GIC. investing, just... That became the whole thing. People just started to invest in what we call passive investing, just investing in indexes. They, they said, you know what? Money managers that are trying to beat you know, the market, like in stocks, are not doing it. In fact, if you look at the stats, it's quite alarming, but every single year, over 90% of mutual fund managers that try to beat the markets underperform their benchmarks. So they're, they're the TSX, if it's a Canadian fund, it doesn't perform as well as the TSX 300. So people have understood this. In the last 10 years, people started to move money away from mutual funds, active mutual funds, and into passive funds that just simply track the indexes. So if you wanted a U.S. exposure, you would buy the S&P 500. If you wanted Canadian exposure, you'd buy the TSX 300. So today, for the first time in history, there's more money in those passive investments than in active ones. And, and we were facing that too, ourselves. And it just became, I realized that no one could beat the market. So why bother? And so why are we in this market? And so we decided to sell to this uh, to Dundee, as I said, and and I retired back in 2014. When when that industry started changing, I feel like it was it Vanguard who was really behind that Absolutely. move. Right? I remember reading his book, John Bogle. Is yes. that the, I remember he. I think it was like 2004. He wrote a book, and it was just basically explaining that you should buy index funds. Oh. I forget the wording he said. And then, uh, you know, I remember reading it then thinking, oh. Oh, he was know. advocating for that he for was, right? years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet no one was listening. No one and was it, really, I remember listen, reading it then right? and I was like, I don't know, I think this guy's onto something. Yes. But I had been so burned with the tech crash yes. that I was like, I think I shared, I might've shared this with you. My Oracle shares went up to like, I remember like 80 some odd dollars. And I told Carol, I said, I think we're going to buy our first family home, like half of it cash I think we might be rich. Right. <laughs> you know, I was in my late twenties. You know, that That's was a good. lot of, and uh, <laughs> so ridiculous looking back on that comment. I don't know if I used the word rich or not, no. but I think that was like the feeling. Of it. Yes. And uh, then it just went down. I remember it was started uh, right at the top at about $84 or something like that. I cashed out a bit, a few thousand and I bought her a ring. Wow. It was the biggest piece of jewelry to, that I had ever bought other than the engagement ring to in my life. Sure. And, uh, I thought, oh, this is something we'll do. And the rest of it's going to be like our save. You know, we're not selling this stock. Three or four months later, it goes from like 80, I think, to 12 or 14. And every day it was it was just taking chunks off a day, just like getting pecked to death. It was like, you know, what, $10, $5 down, $3 up, $10 down. It just went down and down and down. It was so painful. So that's what started my real estate journey. Yes. Because I was like, okay, listen. I can't have an information advantage over these guys that are in the industry because I'm not sitting on the boards of these companies. I don't know their debt. I don't know their next investment. I don't know who they're hiring. In real estate, as ridiculous as it sounds, I feel I can get an information advantage because the only thing I can't control is the interest rate of my mortgage. All the other things, I can choose the street. I can decide if rents are good there. I can decide if I think the population growth is going to be there. I can get the information directly and personally. If I can master interest rates, and that's what started my interest in monetary policy, if I can figure out what the freaking Bank of Canada is going to do before right. they do it, I go, I can mitigate, worst case scenario, right? Sure. I, can, I can mitigate my losses around interest rates because our family in 1990 almost lost everything in a real estate crash. So I, I knew that there was danger, but I thought I can get an information advantage and Nick and I kind of went into real estate. Even though I was in tech, it was really weird for somebody at Oracle and then NetSuite to, to just veer off into real estate. But that was my thinking. I wanted an information. I want to control smart. of my life. And uh, so that's what geared me there. But before we go to your next step about retirement, when you were investing in commercial real estate, because we kind of all see what's happening with commercial real estate today, mm -hmm. right? And some of the stats coming out in the States, I'm 
rent collections on commercial residential by the way from everything we see it's like regular it's 90 some odd rent percent rent collection sure no issues um who knows what happens in the next six months or a year but right now no issues um, on commercial, we're already seeing, we have people who own some commercial real estate and stuff, and they're already seeing some vacancies, lack of response from some tenants mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. How did you look at commercial real estate? Like what was your worst case scenario? How did you kind of, you know, could protect yourself there? Well, we, we mitigated it mostly by just a, a simple, you know, statistic of loan to value, right? So, okay. you know, oftentimes with, and this is really a, a testament to how great we are in Canada at preserving you know, value and capital in real estate in that unlike Americans who take very big risks, um, even the banks take very big risks. In Canada, banks don't lend a lot of money uh, against your home. Even your own home, you'll see you have to get it insured, CMHC insured, if you don't put down, what, 20%, 20% or something. Yeah. So the same is true even in uh, commercial real estate where they expect the owner to put down, uh, put a lot of skin in the game. And that protects us. So in most of our loans back then, you know, we were doing loan to value ratios of 65%. Gonna, okay, I was going to say, I was going to guess 60. Yeah. Okay. And you know what? And, and it wasn't like a, a refinancing. Sometimes you can get a yeah. little bit, you know, you, what you'll have is a person saying, oh, it's only 50% loan to value, but, you know, we're doing a refinance and and my house that I paid $100,000 for, I think it's worth a million now. So will you give me $500,000 mortgage? And it's only a 50% loan to value. Well, not really because you're doing a refi. This was like these these you know, businesses were buying up commercial properties. So we knew the sale price. They were looking for money to buy it. So we felt very comfortable in the loan to value because if they were buying a building for $80 million, they were asking us for $50 million of it. Well, they were putting down 30 real million dollars. So that's how we mitigated yeah. it. Why was no one else? So why were they coming to you? There was no banks doing You yes. found a need. No, oh, no, okay. we didn't. We were actually competing with the banks. Okay. Believe it or not, we were just trying to give more flexible terms. So again, Canadian banks are amazing because they don't take big risks. So they make lending challenging for the borrower. So you have all these covenants you have to meet. You have, you know, this... You have all these uh, uh, different layers of approvals, credit that has to go to underwriters and then approvals, especially big numbers like that. What we offered these borrowers were uh, faster transactions, more flexible terms. We might even offer slightly more interest than the bank was charging them, but they would rather deal with us because banks are more challenging to deal with. Now, the good news is, as being Canadians, that's what makes our banks so strong. That's why in 2008, during the credit crisis, We didn't Mm -hmm. suffer it like Americans did. Our banks weren't in danger of going bankrupt like a lot of the banks were in the U.S. Um, So it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we have a much more stable economy, which we saw in 2008, and a real estate market, which we saw in 2008. But by the other token, it's difficult to borrow money from banks, as you probably Different. know. Yeah, we, that's our game right. every day. Right. We're, we're, you know, and I love the, it's a love-hate thing. I love how conservative they are because of what they offer to the country. But then I also curse them all the yes. time. Well. we did too. We did yeah, too. Yeah, it's a, yeah. a love-hate. Okay, so you go into retirement. Um, you're young when you do this. I was. Yeah, how old were you? 44. Yeah, so what, what, how's that like? You know, what, what, what do you do? I guess it's joy at first. Yes, very much. The challenge, I've often said to people... Retiring young, um, the, the limitation of retiring young is not necessarily do you have enough money. That's a big challenge. Obviously, that, that's a hurdle that everyone's got. Let me guess what yes. it is. No one else around you is retired, so who do you hang out with? Can I tell you something? That's one of the big things. Okay. Okay, thankfully, I had my business partner. So, oh, cool. Okay. You know, we were yeah, good yeah, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bigger challenge is having young children. 
think about this. Most people have this fantasy of retiring, right? And then traveling the world, right? Yeah. Being away a lot. Locked, you were right? locked in. So in, we, we couldn't do anything for long stretches of time because we had young kids, right? So they have to go to school and, and um, you know. I could uh, see you on a cruise ship. You put them in, you know, what's that uh, Disney show yeah, where the sure. kids were on, on school uh, on that yeah, cruise ship? You good. guys just live on a oh, cruise yeah. ship, travel the world. My, parent, my, my kids watch that show. Zach and Cody. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. I remember that, that show. Anyway, so that to me was the biggest limitation. That's why as I reflect back, I say, you know, retiring young is great, but don't expect to go away for the winter like, like you know, the, the, the people that do it later on in life. So it was just a series of small trips over and over again. And, and it was fun and it was interesting. And, and I'm more of a, a, um, an introvert, cerebral kind of guy. So I spent most of my time reading a lot. I wrote, I wrote a book that just was for myself. I always wanted oh, cool. to write a book and I wanted to see if I had the discipline to do it. And so it's not published. It's really it's, just it's for not yourself? published. It's really for myself. I have considered publishing it and some close people. Fernando, I've shared publish this yes, thing. Maybe I should put it out there. Maybe I should. Yeah. yeah. Just to see what comes back. It's, it's another growth move. Yes. Yes. But, uh, so that, that's what I did, but I enjoyed it. Um, and I would have stayed retired. I was completely content. I was given a lot of opportunities because I was young, a lot of firms in Toronto that knew me wanted me to come back in some capacity, whether at board of directors or as a senior person at the firms or, or to even restart another investment firm. Um, and I declined all those offers. And wow. just simply because I thought the industry, as I said, which had changed, I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. And, and I was very content. Wow. So a really cool story. You know, our, you don't know this. I don't know if you know this, but our whole slogan about this business isn't really about rockstar real estate. It's about we have this thing uh, called your life, your terms. And that's really what we're trying to do when we help investors that you're building a, some people call it a plan B, some people call it a second stream of income, or, you know, we're helping them build portfolios that hopefully can support them financially at some point, because it'll ultimately help them live life on their terms yes. and have financial freedom. So that, that's what this business exists, not to make a real estate commission. Right. That's the last thing we're interested in. It's really to try to help people build assets around them. It's why we read about gold and I wear this gold mm -hmm. chain. It's why we talk about this kind of stuff because we're trying to help all of us together live life on their terms. You're someone who's gone and done that and retired and really truly living life on his own terms. So it's a, it's a powerful story you're sharing. Thank it's you. really, really. And I think what you guys are doing is, is so important because in every other part of our lives, we, we are a prisoner of our system, right? Whether if, if you work for, and I'm not saying everyone should be an entrepreneur. They shouldn't. That's what I love about your value proposition is you're saying, look, you could still have your job, but do this to build this plan B. Totally. Just have this on the right. side. Have this on. Because this is in your control, right? You know, the other part of your life is not. You have to, if you worked you know, at, a, at a firm, at a place, you know, you may even make a lot of money there but you're still on their terms. So listen, so. you know what, when I, when I quit, I guess I was 33, 34, six months before NetSuite went public on the New York stock exchange for a bill, uh, raising, raising a billion dollars, mm -hmm. six months before, do you know how many people told me, Tom, what are you don't, I was a, I was classic middle management, regional sales manager. My team was killing it in NetSuite. We were the Toronto office. There was a California office. There was a London UK office. Our team destroying, we were in the wholesale distribution vertical. We were just ripping it up. The software was perfectly designed for wholesale distributors. We were just killing it. 
I knew I was doing well enough that I could give the VP I reported to their six months notice. Mm. I said, look, I won't do, you're about to go public. And when they're going public, every month is the most important month, right? It's not even a quarterly close. It's like this month, our whole future depends on this month. It was making me sick. I I had so much stress. I don't mean this in a bad way. There was just so much stress because I had to call a number every month and I felt like I had to hit that number that I was getting sick every month. And I just, at that point, I remember thinking, I need to make a change here because I was extrapolating out my life and I thought, I don't want to be in my late four, I'm 47 now. And asking someone above me, even if I rose really high, I would consider myself on the fast track in that company, um, really high to to get approval for two weeks vacation in the middle of summer because I wanted to see my son play hockey or soccer or something like that. And if if they told me no, I think it would have been like my ripping my heart out of my chest. That's how I felt. And I remember telling my wife, I need to quit. I, I can't, I can't do this and our income will take a dip. It'll take a sizable dip. We went from doing five-star vacations in Hawaii because, you know, winning sales yeah. awards and that kind of sure. stuff to like, I don't know if we can afford like the super eight down, down the street and it did dip, but then it's recovered. Right. Right. And, uh, I don't even know where I'm headed with no, all this. I, I, I was just, I was just sharing. It's that, a great uh, story because it, it shows that you think about this for a moment. You said I was getting sick, right? And I would say to you, it's one thing to get sick for your own business, right? But to get sick for someone else's, that's where I, I find it a little bit, for me personally, yeah. it would be difficult, difficult to accept. I was taking it so serious. Right. I was taking it personally. Like if right. I called a number, you know, sales, sales yeah. is a bit of a game. Everyone's calling a number, sandbagging different things, but I called it, I wanted to hit it. And right. uh, it was serious, but I learned, I'm so grateful for the, for, you know, the VPs I reported to there for the experience. I learned so to see a company grow like that, hiring people, having to fire people. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you went through that because yes. so difficult, so of difficult course. learning so much stuff. So I'm forever grateful for all those skills, but I feel now I'm fortunate that I've kind of, you know, been in a situation that I can travel now and, you know, we, and you know what, even if I'm not, I'm not, you've done very, very well. Even if you didn't quite achieve, you know, what it was you were achieving there, the reality is it's on your terms. And I, I put a lot of value in that. To me, it's, I've never been the kind of person that had a, a number in terms of this is what suggests that you've made it Same. once you have this. Totally. To me, it, it's, it's more abstract than that. It's, it's, do you have control of your life? Do totally. you decide, do you make decisions for yourself? Yeah. Because one thing, the other thing I've learned is no matter how much money you have, there's someone with more. And no matter how little you have, there's someone with less. Yeah. So stop chasing that number. Stop chasing those things because, you it's know, meaningless. It, it's meaningless. Yeah. It's, it's find value in, in the process and everything else and taking control for me personally. Again, totally. it may not be for everybody, but. So, and then, um, yeah, it's really coming home. Sorry, you're, this is turning into a bit of a, a, just an emotional thought process for me. Cause so now in my later forties, some of my friends and colleagues are being, let go from some of these companies mm-hmm. and at this age you know i don't know where they're journey and they're they're i'm sure they're they're financially fine and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff but i just sometimes think about what's going through their mind and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and and, I, and again they're totally fine it's just yeah I, I feel fortunate and grateful that i'm not in that position and i even saying that i i feel a little selfish saying that mm-hmm. but it's true. I don't know. But again, Weird. I argue it's because you were decisive back then. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I make no crazy. mistake. Maybe make, crazy. Make no mistake. Those same people probably considered those things. The same thing you sure. considered. Yeah. They probably at times thought, maybe I should do something else. Maybe I should you know, yeah. pursue my passion. But they always then couldn't make that decision. 
they couldn't take the plunge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in the process, they woke up and it's 25 years later, like you said, now they're 47 and they can't take the plunge now. Yeah. And so I, I go back to my point of decisiveness. Yeah, yeah, got Make it. a decision. So then you, okay, so this brings us full circle because you made another decision. I made another decision. You're now back in the game. I am. How do you get to that decision? Like I said to you, I, I had no intention of returning to the industry. Um, but over the course of the, the you're getting five, oh, you're, you're, you're very serious and this means a lot to you. I could tell yeah, your body language this, just changed. This was, uh, this was life altering for me. Cool. Because um, I, I, I decided that I'm happy, I'm content, I don't want to do anything anymore. And when you're retired young, and you know, what ends up happening is people get... Um, no, no, we're totally we're, good. We're Sorry, I'm just checking the volume yeah. levels. We're no, good. We're good. Okay. Uh, people end up sending you business plans all the time, right? You, you, you'll know this. You probably do know this. People are always looking to raise capital. And I get these business plans, and I go through them, and I often turn them away because it's just not something I want to do. And, and one day, uh, about a year and a half ago, I got a business plan of a company that this industry that I knew nothing about uh, in artificial intelligence. But what I did understand within the context of this business was they were in some ways managing investment funds for people. And what struck me was I was looking at these portfolios that were all outperforming their benchmarks. I said earlier that no one outperforms benchmarks, but I was looking at portfolio after portfolio that was delivering excess returns over their benchmarks. And I was perplexed and I thought, this doesn't exist. Like, what am I looking at here? I'm looking at eight, 10 portfolios all outperforming. I thought, am I looking at someone that cherry picked the very few winners around the world? Or am I looking at some like hypothetical, you know, dream-like scenario where people say we could deliver this kinds of return? So it sparked my interest. So I reached out to the principal of this firm and his name is Mukul Paul. And Mukul is, uh, you know, an incredibly gifted scientist. I read a bit of his bio now. He's, he seems like a crazy guy. And I mean that as Leo, a compliment. Yeah. Like no one I've ever met. And, and, and if I can say this, he is the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. And Mukul uh, went to MIT uh, and had created this artificial intelligence technology that allowed him, which I admit I didn't believe at the time, uh, to pick the right stocks, bonds, commodities, ETFs, to... to produce returns that exceeded those that any other funds were, were producing. But when I met him, I said, before we get into that, I need to know what is AI? Cause I don't get it. And so you, you, were, the, you were the finance guy. Yeah. He's the AI guy. Right. He's a scientist has a, you know, mass, several masters in econometrics, statistics, finance, uh, FinTech. And, and so I, I, I said to him, tell me what AI is. And you may know what it is, Tom. I, I know, I know a bit about it. Cause your background yeah. in technology, I knew nothing about it. And he's, he was amazing the way he explained it to me. He said, all artificial intelligence is, is trying to teach computers to think like humans. And my first thought was, well, I thought computers were smarter than us, right? He said, well, they're faster than yeah. us, but uh, computers but don't so know smart. how to think. Yeah, yeah. They don't know how to think. They don't know how to, they don't know how to reason. They don't know how, humans get smarter. A child, as the, as the child grows, gets smarter. Computers don't. So that's the, the field of artificial intelligence is trying to write programs, which they call algorithms, instructions for computers to learn. So I said, okay, I think I get it. I go, can you give me an example? He said, the perfect example is, is spell check. Right? This is a good, you, right? you explained this to me. This is a so, good example. So yeah. when spell check first came out, it was a simple program that simply said, your word is misspelled, right? 
But as the algorithms got smarter, these are computers that just naturally are getting smarter. It started to tell you that your grammar was wrong. It started to say, no, that sentence doesn't sound right. So the algorithm started to learn the English language. And today, spell check is predictive language. Now, if you write the word dear, it just assumes you're going to write a letter and starts filling in gaps. So that's, it is getting so good that sometimes I get annoyed at it because right. I'm like, who are you to tell exactly. me? And, and it's usually right now. Whereas exactly. before it was kind of wrong yeah, exactly. a lot. And now it's telling me not even the word spelling, the grammatic, you know, the sentence right. is incorrect. And it's telling me what it should change to. And I'm like, listen, I speak in a casual English. Exactly. You don't understand I, that yet. I know what I'm doing. Exactly. You know, I, I like argue with the, the, uh, the AI of the spell exactly check. Right. You know, sometimes I write the word NP by accident. It spells out no problem. I'm like, it even knows acronyms. Yeah. And so that's AI. AI, like face recognition for your phone, it's about trying to figure out who am I looking at? Self-driving cars use AI. It's trying to predict how do I navigate this car without a driver? It's all about predictions. So AI tries to predict things. And as the database gets larger, exactly. they're, they're more efficient at it, they're better at it. Right. Yeah. So the self-driving cars is a good one yes. because you've seen the improvement in Teslas over the years. Little, even when you were, my friend first got one around the 403 bend here in Oakville, Mississauga, it was a little jerky. Yes. But then a few times later it learned and the smooth, it was, it was smooth. This is artificial intelligence getting smarter. And so what Mukul said to me was, so I could have applied our algorithm, my thesis that I developed at MIT into any other field. I decided to choose it to see, can I beat the markets? And I said, boy, if you're really doing this, this is pretty remarkable. So, but what he was doing was he was um, uh, getting other managers around the world in the US, Canada, Europe, Asia, to use his algorithms. And every month he would send them trading instructions and they would execute those trades and they were performing. I said, but why aren't you doing it yourself? Why would you give away this data, this performance? He didn't know the industry. He said, my background is science. I don't know that industry. I said, well, I do. Yeah. And so you found we a You must have been freaking out. You're like, I it found a my gem life. here. It changed yeah. my life because I didn't think it was possible. And so we created our very own fund. And uh, after a year of working on it and getting regulatory approvals on it, because it's a very sophisticated, you know, a product that doesn't exist anywhere else, we created and we launched it. February 12th of this past year, which coincidentally, if you believe in some cosmic, uh, you know, intervention, February 12th was the very top of the U.S. market before COVID hit. COVID was happening, but the markets weren't being reflected yet. Over the next six weeks, markets fell by 40%. So talk about the worst timing. It's like buying real estate at the top of the market, if you will. It's your worst case scenario situation. Guy. But Can it was the best it? test for our algorithms. And sure enough, our fund is up. Our fund was up during that time. It was actually producing the very things that he claimed he could produce with this technology. So our fund now is up, even though the markets are down. Awesome. So yeah. it's, it's gone very well. Yeah, yeah. good for you. That's, Thank uh, you. that's, uh, that's crazy. I could see how it's coming across in your voice and your explanation of this stuff. How does that industry work? Like when you launch a fund, how does it work? Do you get list? Is it, is it that you get listed by different bank offerings that they say, okay, Tom, you're with like TD Waterhouse or whatever. And now your fund pot, like, is that how the industry works? You yes. go around and kind of sell it to different resellers of your fund? Yes. I, I don't know the industry yes, too yes. well. Th this product of ours, because it's so sophisticated, you have to qualify as an investor for it. And they have to come to you <clears throat> directly to invest? Not necessarily. They can okay. go through a financial advisor. Okay. But the fund has to be approved by the all the securities commissions what, across the country. Did we even mention the name of the fund yet? <clears throat> no. What, it's, are, are we allowed to? Sure, oh, sure. Okay. It's called the uh, AIT, so eight, we pronounce it eight, AIT Long Short Global Macro Fund. And this fund is available all through Canada. 
Um, and it's for what's called accredited investors. So you have to qualify for it. That means it has some you know, income tests that you have to earn a certain income or asset value test if you have assets. Uh, minimum investment is $50,000, which in our industry is not very big, but it's like a conventional mutual fund in that you can redeem it anytime you want. So it's completely liquid. So it's not like we're asking people to, you know, lock in for a year. And, and that's not, so I know you know more than this than me, but that's not risky to you guys because you don't need the money in for, you know, I don't know, a no, year at a time to. It's not like a project, like a real estate project where you're trying to get people to, to fund. Okay, got a it. It's project. really just the size of the fund. It's the size of the fund. Whether matter. we manage 10 million or a billion, the algorithm is just picking the proper investments for that portfolio. Got so it. just like a conventional mutual fund, if, if any of your, clients or any investors have a mutual fund with RBC, you know, and they buy a Canadian equity mutual fund. This is the exact same thing. Yeah, got so it. it's priced every day. Um, just do you, like, do you argue with the AI? <laughs> I'm just, I mean, by that's that, good. That's if good. you see something that, that I don't know, the fund is buying and you're like, what the heck are you buy? What? Listen, you what know, are you buying that for? I'll, I'll tell you, you're, yes, I do. I often <laughs> say, boy, I scratch my head, you know, like for example, believe it or not. And I thought, what an odd idea. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the algorithm identified that there was buying opportunities in the Malaysian stock market. And I thought to myself, what an odd place to go search, but this is what it does. And so um, it, sometimes I question just wondering why there, but, but that's we, pretty cool. there's that's no pretty discretion. There's yeah. no, we don't weigh in. There's no uh, discretion. Yeah, sure, no of course. Bias. That's the whole purpose because, is not to weigh in. Because but. I argue that the problem with existing funds is that there's human intervention. I mean, if you think, I, this is the way I, I look at it. it. But you're right, you're right. It just, yeah. You know, Tom, this is the way I look at it. We use technology for everything else in our lives, right? So, for example, if you're going on a trip, right? In the old days, you would take out a physical map and you'd look at the map. It was inefficient, it was slow. It didn't capture if there was a road closures, right? But we were smart enough to say, well, now G we have GPS. And the old GPSs also didn't factor no. in traffic patterns. No. Today... You go on ways, it'll tell you, get off the highway, go down to Lakeshore, travel east on there, then get back on the highway. They're sophisticated, dynamic products. Well, my question is this. If that's a trip you're going on, isn't investing a trip? Don't you have a journey that you're going on when you make an investment? So why are we still having managers doing analysis on a company's financial statements, on balance sheets, on income statements, trying to arrive at a decision, do I want to make that investment? And then furthermore, the bias that goes with, well, I've made that investment. I'm going to stick with it because I refuse to admit that it's wrong. They always say the biggest mistake investors make is they're unwilling to claim they made a mistake and get out of their position. So they hold it, watching it like your Oracle stock go down. All the way to the bottom. Right? All the way to the bottom because you refuse <laughs> to believe, yeah. well, now the worst is behind us. Things I was like must a get deer better. in headlights right. just staring at that thing. Algorithms don't have deer in headlights, right? Technology says we got it. Right. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, they're looking for patterns and they're right. just executing on those patterns. It's kind exactly. of brilliant. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, so you've just, very this cool. is, this is your bait. You're still, this is, you're not a year. This is your baby right, right. now. So this is a very exciting time. Yes. So, uh, well, well I'm going to get you to hand out the URL in a, in, in a sure. second, but, um, where do you think the, the future, you know, this is interesting as AI develops and you said something interesting there. Why are humans still doing these things? Mm -hmm. With technology and kind of my tech background, and then now with AI and the way you're describing things, I can see a world that, you know, 
is very kind of strangely deflationary in a good sense that like with technology, a lot of stuff's going to, if the right people are organizing some of this technology, the world can produce, it seems like an abundance of wealth, food, energy, everything. We just need the right people behind the wheel on some of these things because with the wrong people behind the wheel on some of the AI, and I'm, now I'm not talking about yeah. your fund but by any means, I'm just things just in macro, general. Macro AI. Yeah, then it can kind of get a little hairy. <laughs> but with the right people, I really feel like, geez, man, we can, you know, technology is just putting out so much value at this point. Um, there's this great book that I just read uh, by Canadian Jeff Booth, The Price of Tomorrow, and he just kind of outlines this really nicely. I'm like, you know what? There's this kind of, I've always looked at inflation and deflation as purely like I'm from a monetary angle. Yes. Like, how am I getting ripped off by inflation today? Why mm -hmm. is Bank of Canada telling me 2%, but houses are going up 8%. Some right. things are, you know, yes. I'm getting screwed. We got to know what's going on. Right. Everybody right. get, get some good assets, right? Um, but, uh, but the way he described it just as a world that maybe benefits from a deflationary kind of spiral because of, you know, technology can produce a lot of agriculture and a lot of energy and, you know, a lot of investing can be maybe taken off your hands and just yes. produce the result. The world ahead looks really fascinating to me. And yeah. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm excited to see how this evolves. I really feel like we're at this weird inflection point. I think There's this are. massive change and discussions and, and people doing cool things like yourself and... It seems like it's a, oh yeah, like a, a strange renaissance is happening that we're all becoming independent again, like our own, our own, you know, butchers and candlestick makers and shoemakers, you know, we're all yeah. taking control of our own lives, like to us living life on our mm -hmm. own terms. But at the same time, there's these big global trends that we're all benefiting from as well. Anyway, I'm right. Yeah, no, I think now. you're bang on. And I think it, the, the, we are at an inflection point. And I would argue that, you know, that technology is a double-edged sword, you know, for everything that it brings us that can you know, move this world forward. There's also implications to people. So, you know, Amazon, the biggest yeah. retailer in the world is going to put all these shopping malls yeah. out of business. I I'm mean, gonna, I don't know about you. I had boxes when COVID first started. We had boxes. Like, I right. felt like every day it was like a present at the door. I'll tell you something. This was, uh, it was a paradox to me because, you know, I would look at Amazon and I would say, you think about it. In every other, it, the way we grew up, if you wanted convenience, you had to pay more for convenience. So, for example, let me use a yeah, silly this example. Is the deflation. Yes, right? please do. Yeah, so, yeah. if you ordered a pizza, if you went to pick it up, right, it, it was cheaper than if you had it delivered. That makes sense, right? I mean, totally because they have to hire someone. Total sense. Yeah, yeah. So, convenience, if, if you cut your own lawn, you're going to pay less for it than if you hire a landscaper to do it. So, convenience always came with a higher price. And then in comes Amazon. And Amazon says, we will deliver the product to your house, right? The product that you want for less money than you can driving to a shopping mall at Christmas time, driving around in a parking lot looking for parking, then walking half a kilometer to the shopping mall, having to carry your coat around because you're sweating in the shopping mall now, going from store to store, standing in lines, right? To freaking spend, out. Freaking That's me, out, me freaking right? out. <laughs> and you're going to pay more money yeah. at the mall. So to me, it was a paradox. I'm like, how did they do this? How did they introduce a convenience while making it cheaper? And to me, that's when I thought technology is both going to help the world, but also hurt it in a lot of ways too. So Agreed. Yeah. So, and that's why I think you're also seeing this, the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. They're getting wider 
because Fernando, we're on the same page right? now. Exactly, I'm right? with you 100. percent So, so you're seeing that. I mean, totally. people people say it. It sounds cliche. Oh, the no, the, no, the rich getting richer. The, no, it's you know, ha- but it's happening. It's you happening. don't know this. We have a report on our website called "The Destruction of the Middle Class." Yes. Because I love, I feel like I grew up middle class somewhere, not right. not on the higher side, somewhere in yeah. there. And I feel like that's what Canada is, and yes. that's what I love about Canada. And I feel like with some, to me, it's 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 the the monetary system is kind of, you know, you have assets, you're going to get ahead. You don't have assets, you're not right. really going to keep up. And not it, not everyone's aware of that, so it's creating this big divide rather mm-hmm. quickly. And then your story on Amazon there—that's like this deflationary story. Like right. things are getting cheaper, are getting cheaper. but it's kind of like life maybe is like in in some ways a little better. In other ways, like you're alluding to, there it could be getting a little worse. So yeah, just freaky times it right is. now. But I agree with you that it's an inflection point. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Like I said to you, there will be a lot of positives that come from all this technological revolution but there will also be casualties. There's going to be collateral damage that people are going to have to suffer through. Yeah, I feel that way too. It's funny. We just had the author of this book on, uh, Seyfedin Amus. Really, really great guy. I'm going to give you a copy of this book as you leave. Thank you. Um, it's, 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 uh, the book's called The Bitcoin Standard, but it's really 75% of the book is just about the monetary system and money. Mm. Um, and not, not from like a greedy way, like how to make money, just the money system. Sure. Right. And he does a brilliant, I've read a lot of books on the subject and, uh, just this, this is a defining book for me. It just blew me away. That's why we reached out to him and had him on. And, uh, then at the end he talks about maybe there's a, the, the, the way Bitcoin might play a role. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about the threats and you know, everything. But, um, I just feel like right now there's this moment that things are changing rapidly and everyone needs to pay attention. You need to be hyper aware right now for your own family's future. You need to be aware when someone's coming out with a fund like you're coming out, you need to be aware of these advancements because if you're not on the leading edge of some of this stuff, eh, I'm not sure you're going to be able, unfortunately, to create a life that you might want for yourself. I agree with you. You know, I, I know very little about Bitcoin other than I did read a book called Bitcoin Billionaires. Okay. It's the story of the Winklevoss twins. Oh yeah, I just know a little bit about <laughs> right? these guys. And, yeah. um, and so I was fascinated. I'm, I'm fascinated by the emergence of Bitcoin. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not making a call on either. Sure, you know, oh my gosh, like could go to not. zero, could go to zero. And I don't know could anything about it. Could go to the moon, could go to zero. But the very idea of, and I don't know if people understand like the, the sort of the abstract nature of Bitcoin, the thought that we have invented a currency, like out of the blue, is fascinating to me. Like you think about it. I mean, it's like it's like inventing no a new one, country. No one controls. It's right? just out there. Like it just it just was created out of the ether that we sent. And and when I when I was trying to wrap my head around it early on in the early days, I'm like, yeah, I guess I can see how it could work. I mean, if if everyone's if you really think about how the the original currency started, right? There was a time when people would trade. I've got a sheep. I need some totally. you know some grain. Here's a sheep for some grain. And then someone finally said, you know what? Why don't we just come up with a piece of paper that we all agree on that this thing is worth something, right? And it was backed by gold back then, you know this. And so we give a bank gold, they give us these pieces of paper, yeah, whatever receipts. that says we're, we're worth this. So now instead of carrying around a sheep on your back to trade it for something else, I'm going to use this. So we did it once. So I thought to myself, well, I guess, you know, I never thought that it could happen again. My, my, you, but it, it's almost the equivalent of I, I often joke and say, there's never been really a brand new sport that has emerged that is 
that has become as big as the big sports, football, basketball, hockey, baseball, right? We've not really had anything. Someone once that's said to me, point. how about UFC? I thought, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. But there's been no well, but brand that's new. Fighting. That's right. fighting and that's existing. But there's been no brand new sport that sort of yeah. muscled their way in and said, this is it. Now we're all following it, right? And I thought to myself, this is kind of like that. It would be the emergence of something out of the blue that says, I know that we're kind of fixed on these big sports. Soccer also for the rest of the world, obviously. But we're fixed on these sports. We're not taking any new applications. And then some, someone suddenly says, here's a brand new sport. Surprise. That suddenly, and that's why I think, you know, maybe this Bitcoin can work, theoretically. Theor yeah, yeah. My biggest, I have a few friends that have been in it for years and just all over me about mm -hmm. it, like aggressively right. all over it. And I'm like, guys, listen, I can't accept Bitcoin at Rockstar because the Canadian government makes us pay taxes in something called Canadian dollars. Right, right. I've heard of them. So, yeah. Yeah. so unfortunately, right. it's just not going to work because, you know, we have to submit payroll taxes right. and we do that monthly and, you know, this stuff fluctuates and, you know, there's HST and it's all yes. pay business taxes. It's all Canadian dollars. So unfortunately, the government has this magical power to do right. that. And I'm a business owner in Canada and, you know, this is the way it's going to work. But then he brings up some articles, not from a currency point of view, just more along the lines of a store of value and then the, 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 the role it could play. And it really, the, the, the new context and framework that I got from this book blew me away. Wow. Like just I can't wait to read it. Thank yeah, you yeah. for uh, offering me a copy. No, before no, no problem. Yeah, yeah. I feel, yeah, I feel, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Fernando, where can people, so give us the URL to your fund. Um, how can, yeah, it's you're not simple, on social media, so people are going to have to track you down. Yeah, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. But, are you uh, on LinkedIn? Okay. Yes, but um, the website for the firm is ait.inc, I-N-C. So kind of a unique uh, URL as well, just 8.inc. Yeah, and AIT. you'll get all the inf all the information there about the fund. Okay, got it. And I guess through there, can can can, can people reach out to they you? They can reach and, out to yeah, me, yeah, okay. and, and we can begin the process if they are. I mean... Again, I'll, I'll tell you about the story. If anyone's interested to talk about it, I'm happy to, to talk to them about it. I love telling the story. It's truly like nothing I've ever seen in my 30-year in my career in this industry. This, this is the equivalent of, I mean, not to over, you know, Say it. I can say this. you feel it. Just say it. It's like finding the lost city of Atlantis. Yeah. It just feels wow. like we've discovered, cool. we've discovered something very, very special. Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. And I have to, uh, so I have to share, we just met each other recently mm -hmm. and uh, just felt like you were a good guy and had a lot to talk about. So Thank invited you. you on the podcast here. So just so everyone's listening, I'm personally not invested, just more because we've just met and mm -hmm. I don't really, uh, I'm more, I, I, I tell everyone, I'm kind of into the real estate game. This yes. is what I do. So I'm not saying that because uh, I've judged in any way, pro or con, it's just uh, something that I'm personally not in right now. Who knows? Right. That might change. And I love but, real estate. You know, Tom, yeah. I want to make clear that I, the industry itself, I love the real estate. I often say, it's, though. It seems served, it served you well. Oh, yeah, go on. What were you going to say? I was going to say that I, I believe very strongly that people do not uh, factor in one important element to all investments that they often ignore. And to me, one of the most important elements is liquidity, is the ability to liquidate your investment on a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, as much as I love real estate, it's, it's not, not liquid. It's not yeah. liquid at a moment's notice, no. right? And so I look back in 2008 when the, the credit crisis hit, all these different investment opportunities existed out there. People that needed to sell their second homes or their cottages or, you know, vacation homes or you had all these opportunities. What people lacked was not the willpower or the courage to invest. They lacked liquidity. 
because everyone was, all their assets were tied up in their house or in their investments that had declined in value and they didn't want to get out because there was a loss on the books. If someone was sitting at that very moment with a pile of cash, could you imagine what they could have done in terms of buying oh, U.S. Gee, real great estate? opportunities. I mean, yeah, totally. U.S. real estate in certain states had fallen by over 60%. People understood that. It didn't take a genius in Canada. You and know, the Canadian dollar was a par. Our dollar was a par. So it didn't take a genius to say, boy, maybe I should buy a place in Florida. Yeah. And some people did. But wouldn't it be great if you could buy 10 places in Florida during that time? Totally. What people lacked was liquidity. And that's why I say... Do not underestimate the value of liquidity, which our fund, which investing in the public markets do. Why people don't like investing in the public markets is they're volatile. We've answered that issue because our fund has what's called a short position, which is unique, that really flattens out the performance. So our our drawdowns, meaning the, the risk of it going down, is very, very limited. We don't lose our worst day. We lose maybe half a percent or a quarter of a percent. Our best day, we don't gain that much either. It's just a slow and steady approach that's protected, but is liquid. So I do like to say that liquidity is important. It's important. And I think yeah. you need some of it. I would, and, and obviously being more of a real estate guy right now, I would counter with you. And I mean this in the friendliest yeah, please way. Do. Is please that, do. That I've benefited from the lack of liquidity. <laughs> and the reason is there's been many times where Nick and I have had a problem property, a tenant mm-hmm. or something, and we're like, just sell it. Yes. Just sell it. But because you can't snap your fingers True. and you have to list it and stuff, we've held it. And the hel- the holding of the properties now for multiple decades has paved, paid off very handsomely. So sometimes, but you, I, 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 will, I will tell you, you definitely, we tell everyone, you might not know this. We're like, hey, listen, you need three buckets in your life to us to live life on your terms. Yes. You need cash. You need, so in your world, you need the liquidity. We're, yes. we're calling it straight up cash. Okay. Okay. But you need cash in your life because at, at emergencies and deflationary times or times of opportunity, opportunity. let's say, yep. the cash is really going to be important. So it serves you in emergencies. It serves you in a deflationary period where cash actually goes up in period and maybe there's an opportunity. So you need cash. The other thing you need are assets and, and ideally income producing assets of some sort because you that'll be a cash flow component. And if they appreciate over time, that's great. So you need that in your life. And then the third thing to us is to mitigate your, your risks. You need some sort of insurance policy on your financial life. And that's, we've always used gold for that. We're like, hey, yes. this is just insurance. You know, if the system kind of just goes funky, right. the gold is, you know, has... 2,500 years of history. It's, uh, it's very, uh, there's a, there's a high saleability factor to it. People are going to want this thing. So, um, you know, have some of that as insurance on everything else. So yeah, I, that's I'm, a well I'm, diversified I, portfolio. Well, sure. I, I, yeah. So I'm with you on the liquidity thing. Yeah. And just anyone listening to this is that so I, I just wanted them to know both sides. Like I see your yeah. side, and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I've been I've been served really well from the lack of liquidity. And some investors, it saved them because they've had the same moments of like, just sell this mm-hmm. thing. But uh, sometimes the, you being forced to stay in it can serve you well. But yes. uh, this is something maybe we should talk about for yeah. next time you come on. I look but we're to not going to have any wine because you yeah. and we didn't even get to that. And we didn't get to that. We didn't we get there. We'll talk about. We'll have to have you back. We're Talk about why you why you don't drink wine. Um, We'll talk about that and more about this discussion about liquidity and real estate and that kind of stuff. I look forward to it, Fernando. Thank you. So the URL is eight a i t dot inc. Uh, we'll link out to this as well. This episode will be at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast. You'll find Fernando's episode there. Fernando Cipriano. Did Very I say good. it right? You did. Perfect. Uh, again. <laughs> thank you so much. It's really a pleasure getting to know you better. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Tom. 
Hey everyone, it's Tom Kratz, and this is like the sixth time I'm trying to take this ending of the podcast. So hopefully this goes okay this time. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode of the Your Life, Your Term show. Fernando is obviously a great guy. Really just getting to know him, but had a ball sitting down there uh, chatting with him. I love it when someone has so much experience in a certain industry because you get to extract a lot of knowledge really quickly. So we're definitely going to have him back on the show. And listen, if you are listening to this and you want some real estate investing information, and you want to understand the real estate market from an investment perspective, you can visit www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's one of our websites where we've accumulated a whole bunch of information, including free digital copies of all our books. And the reason we give away free digital copies of our books on that website is that we hope that we can show enough value to you that one day, When you're ready to buy your first investment property or your next investment property, perhaps you'll come to Rockstar and check us out and work with us together. So that's why we put out that information along with a bunch of reports that we have. We have a bunch of videos on that website and you can register for the free 90 minute introductory training class where we share how we're working with investors right now across the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe here in Ontario to find and buy cash flowing investment properties right now in 2020. So for all of that, you can go to www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for now. Until next time, remember your life, your terms.